All right. Hello. Welcome back to the Key to Success podcast. I'm your host, Terrell Key, and I'm back with another episode. Man, today I have a megastar in the education world. I have, man, not only is he, is, is he an educator, I'm a fan of him just for being an educator and uh, talking about all the things, you know, how kids deserve uh, us to be our best version of ourselves as educators and to, to think outside of the box. He's also a runner, man. You know, I, I, I love running. If there's one thing I love is running, man. I mean, even... Uh, We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll get into it. You know, talking about, you know, how I ran in St. Jude and everything, ran the full marathon and stuff like this. So he's, uh, you know, a runner. He's run, I think, what, 20 marathons or something like that. Former administrator, teacher. Um, he wrote a book called Kids Deserve It. And look, after this, these last few years, kids definitely deserve us being the best version of our possible, like of ourselves that we could possibly ever be. Because, man, these last few years have been rough. So, I couldn't have a better guest on my show than Adam Welcome. So I'm going to bring him up in just a second. But before I do it, I've been told that sometimes I hop on here and people don't even know who I am. They know my guests, but they don't know me. So my name is Surreal Key. And uh, right now I'm an assistant principal and uh, started off as a sub, been in education for like 16 years now. Done a bunch of cool stuff, won some awards and all that. But I'm here with an amazing guest. I am here with Adam Welcome. How are you doing, Adam? What's up, Terrell? What's up, everybody? Thanks for having me. Man, I mean, you are coming off of a summer tour like no other. You have been all over the country. How are you doing today? Man, I am. Uh, I'm feeling good. So the summer is my busy time for sure. I just was in 18 states in like two months, had 27 events and uh, just finished up last Thursday. It's uh, It's a really cool thing that I get to do. I just get to go and work with uh, educators all over the country. And uh, like I said, the summer's my busy time, just making sure everybody is ready to go with the school year, kicking off the school year in, uh, in good form. And uh, I'm home for a couple of weeks before I kind of finish out the year and, uh, and see what's going on next year. Yeah, so you kind of have a marathon going in the summer physically and <laughs> actually like in a different sense, in a metaphorical sense, like you're doing – 18 tours in the summer. I mean, that is exhausting. So I noticed that you're like finding treadmills and all kinds of stuff just to kind of keep yourself together. Last year for me, you know, being an administrator and keeping up with the pace, like I forgot about how much I love running. Now I'm kind of back into running and lifting and things like that, man. It Like I was just uh, just tweeted about it, man. Like it has a tremendous uh, impact on your mental health and everything. And I mean, I don't know, like, can, could you, you think you could even do what you do without running and everything? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I run every single day. My wife and I run together three to five miles every single day. And I've run 32 marathons in my life. I've run a bunch of ultra ultra marathons, which is 50 miles or more. Mm -hmm. And uh, I definitely think it helps to be on the road and on the grind because I have that stamina and I can go on like two hours of sleep, which happens a lot when you're traveling and you're in the business that I'm in, you know, flights are delayed and canceled and you got to drive all night and get to your hotel at four in the morning and then be up at five in the morning and, uh, and rock and roll all day. But, um, you know, I think it just helps me for life too. You know, I still, I still do marathons. My, the, the new thing that I do is I guide blind runners on marathons. Mm. So uh, like the correct term is visually impaired. The person that I've guided is, is, is legally blind. He can't see anything. Uh, and I'm doing it again in December. And it's, uh, it's just a really, really awesome experience to be able to help somebody else get across the finish line. It's, uh, it's really awesome. 
Yeah, and for the people out there that have never run a marathon, it is like it's an experience like no other. I mean, first off, like the mindset that you have to train for that long. I mean, I ran my twenty mile run before my marathon in freezing rain. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, it's it's a, it's a different mindset just to even build your way up from one mile all the way to that, and then like you know, like you have the race, you know, and then you're gonna go. I mean, it's nothing like it. I mean, like I ran twenty in training. But that last six was a beast, man. And it, it, it just brought something out of me. And for you to be able to guide someone across the finish line, I mean, it's a moment that could bring, like, even the best of us to tears. I remember they told me, like, when I crossed, welcome to the 1%, like, because only mm-hmm. 1% of people actually even complete a marathon. I mean, it was, it was tough. I had to call my wife. I, I was like, hey, man, like, what did I just get myself into? <laughs> no, you know, I think I think running a marathon is actually a really good thing for that more people should be doing. And a lot of people go, I couldn't run a marathon. And I actually tell you, like you could, you really got to learn, you got to learn patience because a marathon is a 20 mile warm up with mm-hmm. a six mile race at the end. And you got to be patient for those 20 miles. You got to be patient with the training. You got to be patient with your nutrition and, and oh sleep and, and all those things, you know, and it's just uh it's just super important to think about. And it also just pushes you past these perceived limits that we put on ourselves. Like, Oh no, I'm good with a 5k. You know, you can do more than that. And like, Oh, I did a half marathon. There is no way I could do more than that. And then you go do a marathon. I mean, Terrell, I've run 50 mile races. I've run hundred mile races and you think you have these limits and you know, not to like discount that, that distance, you have to train. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't just like wake up and I'm going to go run hundred miles. Like you, you can't don't, respect the distance. Yeah. Don't do that. But, but also respect yourselves and all the capacity that just hasn't been tapped into that is just sitting there in our bodies. You know, I used, I like to say, this is not your practice life. This is mm-hmm. it. And go make it happen. Cause when you do hard things in your personal life, when you come to work, whatever you do, everybody that's listening, you're going to be able to go farther and bigger and wider and broader for yourself, for your colleagues, for your students, for your community, because you've pushed yourself out in your personal life. And then what happens too is kids start hearing about your stories and they go, dang, if they can do it, I can do it too. And to me, that's the biggest win when kids start seeing the adults in their lives really doing hard things and pushing themselves and breaking past those perceived barriers that we just kind of put up arbitrarily on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we're just like, get out of the way. I'm doing this. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to get through this. Yeah. And it's crazy how like your mind can like overcome like your body. Like for me, I mean, I, I, like for 20 miles, I was feeling great. I was like, oh man, this marathon <laughs> business, man, this ain't nothing. And uh, man, I stopped the stretch. Oh, I don't know why I did it everything shut down because like my nutrition was bad. I took like for granted nutrition. Look, Adam, I was crazy, man. I was eating uh, Tootsie Rolls on the road, like while I was running. Oh, don't do that. (laughs) It was a terrible idea, man. It was a terrible idea, but like I was able to kind of fight through it. You know, like I was, I mean, just incredible. Like what your mind can do, like, even though your body is totally tapped out and cramping up, you Mm. could still push through things. And I think that's like, it kind of related to what I went through last year as in my first year as an administrator, which like for many of the administrators at our school, they said it was the hardest year ever. Um, but I was able like to find like those spots. So sort of like when you're running, like you're able to go on cruise control mm-hmm. and then snap back in and be present when you need to. Like I was able to kind of do that 
you know, like, and bring that into like the year and realize like once we were at the end of the year, I knew that I could finish because of, mm-hmm. you know, like that marathon mindset. Yeah. I mean, in 2017, uh, I did 13 marathons in one year. And then I ran a, I, I did a 24 hour race on New Year's Eve, which is exactly what it sounds like. You run as far as you can for 24 hours. And it was a mile loop for a day. And my goal was 100 miles. And it was 3 a.m. And I forget what my mileage was, but you, your brain starts to kind of get mushy. And I remember at 3 a.m. thinking, gosh, like I am tired. But I, I say this story because you, if you want something so bad and you've prepared for it and you have an ecosystem of people that is on your team from all over the country, I was getting text messages and voicemails and Instagram and Twitter posts and people like, Adam, don't stop. And I kept going for six more hours and I ran 103 miles in 24 hours and like I'd already run for, for so for like what, 18 hours. And I went for six more. I mean, six, six hours in itself is a long time. I already run for 18. It's just, it is these perceived limits that we put on ourselves. When you, you think your body thinks it's done, your brain can go, no, 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 no. So you just, you just can't, you can't be tricked. Um, I always like to tell myself, no, no, no. People have done harder things. There has been, you know, there's been so many times throughout history uh, I mean, just think about history all the times people have done things for, you know, months or years being a POW. Yep. And I'm like, you know what, I, I can do this for a day. And there mm-hmm. were people in in prisoner of war camps for four years. Uh, when you start putting those things in perspective, I think. Um, and again, that's just like one example. There's many, many examples, I think, through history. Um, I think I think it makes it easier for the brain to go, OK, I can do this, too. I'm going to be OK. Yeah. And for me, uh, I, I think that moment for me, like where it was like, knock it off was so like when we were about to run like St. Jude Marathon, uh, like before, like they told us about like the pink hospital at the top of the hill. And they said it's the last hill and it, it is a beast. Right. But when you look up, you're going to see this pink hospital. And inside that hospital, there are kids that never get to leave because I sit. So when you're complaining about what you're going through, think about what these children are going through every day. Like I looked, I'm telling you, like when I, I hit the hill, I was like, oh, the hill was a beast. But I looked up, I was almost in tears, man. Like mm-hmm. just thinking about what those children feel yep. every day. And you know what? While well, I, so, I was focused on them and I made it through, I made it through the hill. Yep. You know, yep. you just keep going. And, right. um, you know, and la- like lastly, before we kind of get into like, you know, like being awesome for educators, I think in order to become awesome, we have to overcome some of the negative things that we tell ourselves. And just like early in any race. A lot of times, like mile one, two, and three, man, they could be deceiving. Like, you know, you, they, you start telling yourself you don't feel well. This isn't your day and stuff like that. You tell yourself all these negative things. But if you just keep fighting through it and start telling yourself positive things, maybe something awesome will occur. Mm-hmm. You know, that's right. So, that's right. So, yeah. So um, I kind of want to talk about, you know, so I've been I've been I've been watching a lot of Adam Welcome. You know, I, I'm a fan, you know. Uh, so one of the things that you uh, you talked about. It's about like shifting our mindset and our mentality as educators. So you said that we have like a landline mindset and, you know, and children are not trying to pick up the landline anymore. That wasn't something different. So I think one of the the, the like correlations, like a, a high button topic, and I think it's going to become a very important topic is like the question of cell phones. You know what I mean? Like, because you can learn, like you said, you can learn literally practically anything from the most engaging people in the world from YouTube, from Twitter, from Google, you know, like it's all right there. Right. 
So, I mean, there's a lot of schools because I feel like they can't compete, um, you know, with cell phones, sort of like how uh, music companies couldn't compete with LimeWire, right? But, I, but LimeWire and like all of these streaming services ended up winning. So I, want, I wonder, like, you know, from your perspective, like teachers are struggling to compete, like with technology. Like, where should we be at with this if we're going to want to be awesome for students? Like, do we embrace uh, cell phone technology as educators? Or do we do what some of these schools are doing and making kids put them in pouches or just literally taking them away? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, I just want to say uh, teachers are more important than ever in 2022. I think educators on a whole are important in different ways, in different ways than they were important five years ago or in different or important in different ways when, you know, 20 years ago I started in the classroom as a third grade teacher. My dad taught second grade for 35 years. Teachers are important differently now. So I just want to get that off right off the bat. Uh, technology is never going to replace teachers. I think teachers need to focus on what they are experts in, and that is kids, curriculum, and relationships. And technology is in our world. We went camping this weekend, and we actually camped um, in a place where there were uh, there was no cell coverage and they had two pay phones and we were with a couple other families that are really close to ours and we rolled up and my wife and I are like oh check out the pay phones and my kids are like what are you talking about like they, they had no idea they had no idea what the pay phones were and it was just a, it's just a really really good reminder that we live in a different world we have Wi-Fi kids and we can't teach them with landline strategies and. I'm a believer in, 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 in allowing cell phones in, in school. You know, I am, I know, I know districts that have gone back and forth and I think, I think they should be in school for a multitude of reasons. One, because it's a device, like let's harness the power in that. I, I you know, if, I think educators might say, Oh, well, kids get distracted. And I, I would just, I would just come back with, you know, if, if kids are engaged in a lesson, they don't have time to be distracted with their cell phone or with what's going on. Uh, I, I, I really, really believe that. Um, I, we can get into the ideas of like safety, like, hey, I want kids to have their phones in case something's happening at school and <clears throat> they need to use it from a safety standpoint. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, uh, I mean, I think they're here. I, I, think, I think where like, if you put a phone in a pouch, I think that could happen at certain times throughout a week or a year. Like, hey, we really need to focus on this or I don't want any technology for this. Put your phones in the pouches. But just to have that blanket uh, mandate, I personally think that is a mistake. But um, that's where I'm coming from with it. Yeah, I mean, I hear a lot of different people think a lot of different things. So I know everyone's got their opinion and you have to do it in each district has to do what works for them. But I just feel if you say no cell phones, we just turned all educators into the security guard of give me your phone. Do you have your phone? We're just always trying to to investigate something that's going where if we look at it from a different standpoint and harness the power of it, I think we can do it. I, th I think we can use it for really good things. Yeah, I actually totally agree with that um, because, I mean, sometimes when you take away the phone, now you're responsible for the phone, too. Mm -hmm. So if something happens to the phone, now you're, you know, you're in trouble for it. There's also been cases where, uh, like, there's been an emergency and the child didn't have access to their phone or something like that. So, like, there was some backlash for that, too. So I, I, I think we need to figure out a way. We need to be, like, smarter 
uh, about like how we uh, approach the cell phone situation. It might take some thought. Uh, it might take take a little research. It might take us trying some new things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we work like cell phones aren't going anywhere, and there's nothing you. I don't think there's anything that any of us could do about it. You know. So, um, Adam, you still there? Looks like he froze up. Looks like he froze up a little bit, Adam. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know, man. Like, what do y'all think in the chat? Like, while we wait, uh, wait for him to kind of unfreeze a little bit. Like, what do, what do y'all think? What should we, should, should educators move the cell phones out? Because I could also see the argument for, um, you know, saying that kids are too distracted to learn. So, like, what do y'all think? Uh, we have. I don't think kids need phones. Okay, I think the the key word there is need. Let's see. We have Adam. He's back. Let's let's move the other Adam. For the new Adam, there we go. Dude, it's 107 degrees right now in California. Ooh. I think the heat is messing is messing with my Wi-Fi, man. I'm sorry. It's all good. No worries. So no it's worries. so it's so hot here. <laughs> yep. I definitely appreciate uh appreciate you taking the time to be here. Uh, another thing that you talked about. So you know, man, you're you're big on Twitter. You're big time on Twitter, and then you're also an advocate for using Twitter. So my wife and I, man, we we were talking about a tweet. Uh, but it also kind of relates to a story that you told too, right? So, um, so I saw a tweet. Uh, actually, let me start with what with your story when you were talking about you had a teacher, and this teacher was, uh, you know, forcing like not forcing, but like pushing you to try new books and you know to just constantly read, you know. And you kind of mentioned this teacher earlier. This teacher was your father, uh, and he and he helped you like to uh, become like a, a an you know a passionate about reading, right? Like being an avid reader. Um, so I saw this tweet and it, it kind of went viral uh, like a little bit. And they were talking about how it's not um, a parent's responsibility to teach their child how to read and stuff like that. And it's entirely uh, the onus of teaching a kid how to read is on the school. I, I think that the school has a, a like, you know, a responsibility here. But I also think that, you know, man, I think a parent is your first teacher, you know, and I think your dad modeled that uh, quite well. And people were going back and forth on that on Twitter. So I just figured it'd be a cool, like just something different for, uh, for you to uh, answer. Like, what do you think? Uh, do you think it's entirely the school's uh, responsibility to teach uh, reading? Um, Cause I, I hear about some teachers getting burnt out uh, because the kids are coming into kindergarten and not being able to read. Like, is it entirely on the school or should parents uh, have a hand in that too? Like, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's, I think it's kind of a complicated question just to be real. Um, you know, my parents, my dad was a teacher, so literacy and learning was obviously very important in my house. My parents had the means to buy books. My parents had the means to get my brothers and I to the library. And, you know, as we know, not every family has that, um, has the ability to buy books or to find books maybe in the language that they speak at home or maybe even have transportation to get to a public library before the kids are in school. So, you know, my experience is definitely coming from a place of I was very, very fortunate and lucky to grow up and to be born into a family that had parents that were able to provide that for me. Uh, Do I hope and wish that every family reads to their child before they enter kindergarten and even when they're in school, a hundred percent. I had amazing teachers and I was a very reluctant reader. I had a dad that was a teacher and I was a very reluctant reader and he just did not give up with bringing books home and, and taking us to the library, which, you know, you can go get a library card. They're free. We pay taxes. It's a really, really awesome resource. 
you know, in this country. Uh, and he just wouldn't give up. And I'm so glad that he didn't because, I mean, I read I read at least a book a week. We're recording this on September 6, 2022. I've already read 52 books this year alone. And I, I think books are the best investment that we can make in the life of the child. So what happens, Terrell, if you get a student in kindergarten, first grade, whatever grade, and they haven't been exposed to books and literacy? Well, I just say on as a school Yes, of course, the school should have a part in teaching kids to read, uh, pushing books, the love of literacy. And there's so many ways you can do that. And just making sure that we're making contact with all families, making sure that we have books that look like the students in our schools, in our classrooms, make sure we have books that are available to kids. I mean, I think every school at the very minimum should have a one of those tiny free libraries. I've been to, I've been to, th- 42 states uh, doing work for speaking. And I, I love just driving by a school and seeing a tiny free library. And I see kids in those libraries taking books. I think we should have books on school buses. I think the school bus driver is the first person our kids see every day and the last person our kids see every day. And just get get laundry baskets of books or get little pouches that go over the, over the seats of the bus so kids can grab a book or read or take one home. So yes, I do think parents should play a role, but also knowing that not every family is as fortunate to have that. Uh, I haven't been a full-time principal for about five, six years, but I still do substitute principals, uh, principal jobs, which is super fun. You know, schools need substitute teachers. They also need substitute principals at times. Uh, And last year I did a a month long substitute principal job and we had like 15 different languages at the school. And we had a lot of families that the parents didn't speak English and they didn't have access or maybe they didn't have education uh, to a certain grade where they came from, from whatever country that was. So it takes a concerted effort to also hopefully bridge that gap with parents and invite them into literacy nights. Or sometimes it's also, uh, you know, having literacy available for parents. This school had that because it's not just teaching the kid. It's also teaching the parents at some, on some level. So we get that. Uh, so we get that at home. Um, you know, so just think kind of thinking that all, all of that into, into a big, into a big framework. I think if we want to make reading cool and make it stick with kids, it's not giving them points for each book. It's, it's showing them that reading can change their life. And reading to me is the, is the gateway to so many other things in life. I didn't love school. Uh, I, I didn't do very well in school, but I think about that now. And as a 43-year-old adult, I love to learn. And learning takes many different forms. And one of those forms is is reading. And if we can get kids hooked as early as possible, I think we have them for life. Yeah. And that kind of ties nicely into like one of like your talking points is about opening doors uh, for children. And, you know, I also think that schools can also have a a role in opening doors for parents and community members. Mm -hmm. So like there's opportunities for us, like when, you know, whenever there's like a parent that might not, um, be capable of reading or like, or maybe like they speak another language, like we could run programming to assist parents and open up doors for them to be stronger advocates for their children. I think, you know, um, reading to them ourselves, that's great, you know, but if a parent, if we could help that parent and build that bond, I think that's really, really strong. Another thing that I've seen uh, administrators do is have like reading programs at night where they go online 
and they read a book, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and that way, every child has, um, you know, the ability, you know, especially if you're doing things to make sure that kids have access to Wi-Fi at home, uh, like we do in our district. And uh, we're a one-to-one -one district. So that way they would have access to have someone that could read to them every single night, because I think that's just so important. Uh, that's an important job for a parent. I think it's great. Like, you know, schools, like we, we could fill in gaps, you know, but man, if we could do anything to support that parent, uh, to be a better, because uh, most parents, like I would say 99% of parents want to be strong advocates for their children and sure. do what's best for their children. So I, I definitely think that um, that's the case. Um, one of the things, uh, I think it kind of ties into like another question that I had. So I don't know, man, I'm just asking you different questions. I'm trying to ask you different stuff that I have. Hey, I love it. I All right. It. So I had um, like a guy, you know, man, you know, you know, we on YouTube, we get trolls. Right. But this troll was actually <laughs> it, it make it making a little sense, kind of, but not really, because I don't think he really understood where I was coming from. He was saying that um, equity, like doing equity work in schools is uh, pointless because he was saying that um, if we're pushing for students to become excellent, then ultimately, like that's going to become an equity gap between the students who are doing excellent. And their parents uh, are going to, you know, have access to more money, more time, more things. So ultimately, no matter what we do within schools is like we're going to we're going to ultimately end up losing the equity battle. So I, I hear him on that logic. But what I was telling him is I think that schools have the responsibility to create opportunities because I've seen children that had nothing, you know, literally had nothing. But because, you know, whether it was myself or someone else, we were there for that child and we supported that child. I've seen them do the impossible over and over and over again. Does it happen to everyone? No, but without us and without us opening doors, I don't think that, you know, some of these things would have been possible because, because of like life circumstances surrounding uh, the student. So like, I want to, I don't know, man, like in a roundabout way, like, what do you think about equity work? Like, what are we getting wrong with it? How can we communicate this better to the community so that there's not um, like all this backlash and this back and forth about things like CRT, DEI, social emotional learning and stuff like that. Like, what can we do better, uh, you know, inside schools, like to communicate to the community about this? Yeah. I mean, I kind of shake my head when people say that uh, it uh, <laughs> equity work shouldn't happen in schools. I, I don't understand that because I think a hundred percent that it, it should. And I don't think I'm getting political because it's not political at all. I mean, this is our country and these are our kids and this is, this is what it looks like in 2022. And that's to me super, super amazing. And I think people, I think people, um, I'm guessing people, people don't want that and they don't like that. And that's why people say things like that, Terrell, or as you know, they say many other things or they bring up things like CRT, um, which I mean, you know, I've read on it, but most people can't even say like what it is. Um, and, you know, I think, I, th I think back to my dad. So it, my dad taught in, I guess, you, you know, like the inner cities uh, and uh, like 100% free and reduced, uh, tons, tons of diversity in a student population. And I, I got so much of what I do just by seeing my dad and something that I say all the time that, you know, now that you talk about this, I'm sure I just got it from my father was, you know, we, we do, we have to open doors. We have to open doors for kids be, that, that don't have the doors that are open to them. And that goes back to my last response about literacy and reading. I had doors opened for me by my parents and of course, by my community and my teachers, just from where I grew up and what family I was just happened to be born into when it comes to books and 
uh, you know, we have to make that equitable for all kids to show them literacy and to bring opportunities to them. I think about something that my dad did. My dad, <laughs> my dad taught my brothers and I how to play the violin. And let me just tell you, my dad didn't really know how to play the violin, but he knew enough. And he brought music to his students in Richmond, California. And I remember he would get violins donated. And I remember going to garage sales and he would buy violins for like $15, you know, with his own money. And my parents did not have a lot of money um, because he wanted to. He wanted to bring something different um, that they didn't have uh, exposure to. There wasn't a music program. And uh, I'm going to wrap this story. I'll kind of get to the point where um, my dad passed away uh, about 11 years ago from cancer. And we had a celebration of life and some former students came and it was it was fun to see to see those people and hear stories. And then I got an email from a student who um, who had a rough start to life, just kind of leave it at that. And they said that, uh, you know, they had never thought about playing um, an instrument before. And my dad got him, got him in, he got him hooked, he opened up a door, he brought something that they did not have or that they would not have had. And they went on to get a scholarship to Juilliard in New York, and they play full time in, uh, in a symphony. And I just feel like, you know, and th that's just one example, Terrell, but um, I think we 100% have to um, come to a reckoning in this country with our history and we need to teach our history accurately how it really happened and not teach just the things that we want to teach because it's uncomfortable for, for some people. And um, it's, you know, reading books and knowing about things and going on field trips and, and reading reading about maybe things that we weren't taught in our history books. And as you know, some states are taking things out of their history books, which I think is, is unfair. And I don't think it, I don't think it's doing our country. It's doing our country, nothing but a disservice. Um, and I think those, those repercussions are going to be felt for a long time, unfortunately. So, um, you know, if anybody says something to me about CRT, you know, I'll just say, Hey, do you know what that is? And do you, do you actually know that I, I was just in Oklahoma um, which is a is a very you know red conservative state, and these principals are like you know we don't teach telling these parents that don't even have kids in the school anymore. Um, it's just gotten so political. They're like we don't teach CRT. We actually don't even know what that is. It's just something that somebody brought up. You know this is what we do. This is what we teach, and um, it's just unfortunate because it distracts so much from the work that teachers and educators actually really want to be doing because I don't really think most educators or any at all want to be having those nonsensical conversations um, with people. So, um, and I also think too, it, it's up to, it's up to parents definitely on some level to um, expose kids, especially maybe kids that have um, more privilege than others that maybe don't have diversity or as much diversity um, around them to, to bring these things to light. Um, because I think that's just going to make our country a better place and our world a better place. So kind of a roundabout answer to a roundabout question, but I hope right. that uh, I hope that makes sense and uh, just kind of how I think. Yeah. And the other thing, like, you know, like you, you spoke about your father and like the relationships that he had with the students. So I also saw some of the pictures that you show, like the black and white pictures with your dad and like how the kids, you could tell how they were leaning in, into him. Uh, like those relationships really meant something to those students. And uh, 
that literally leads into student engagement and and how you were talking about reshaping the way that we think about classrooms and uh, doing it with a student-centered lens. You showed a picture of like a classroom that was shaped totally differently. Like it didn't look like anything else. Like there are classrooms where all of the roles are like facing the teacher. And it's like the teacher, yeah, I, got, I have all the information and then you got to learn this from me. But this classroom was differently, uh, set up differently. Like, how do we push teachers to to think outside of that box, you know, that, that we've been in because, you know, it's what we were we came up in, what we're accustomed to without, you know, running teachers off because teachers feel like they're stretched thin already. So how do we push them uh, to 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 think totally differently and to to focus more on the student in a way that they probably weren't even taught themselves, but it's probably more productive and leads to better student outcomes and lesser like disciplinary infractions. How do we yeah. put them that way? Yeah. So I think, I think, um, I think engagement is the key and not entertainment. I think, I, I think, I, I don't want to say, I don't, I, I don't think too many teachers are trying to entertain, but I see, I see entertaining trying to happen. And I tell people, you know, you don't work on a cruise ship. When you engage your students, I think going back to the cell phone piece, they don't have time to get in trouble. The best discipline program is an engaged classroom. Get them moving, get them thinking, get them talking, get them collaborating, get them failing. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about. There's a great video of um, of Bobby McFerrin. Shout out to all the music teachers out there. I love some Bobby McFerrin. And Bobby is on stage at this conference and it's like a brain research conference. And he tells the audience, you know, he's like, do what I do. Like he goes, bong. And they do bong. And then he goes to the right and he goes, bong. And they do, they do the same noise. And he's showing them the pentatonic scale. So he, he brings them high. He brings them low. He kind of steps on two notes and they don't know what to do. So he's checking for understanding. And then within like 30 seconds, Terrell, he stops doing the bump on bomb with his voice. He's just going up and down. And it's really this invisible pentatonic scale because there's nothing on the stage and the audience is doing exactly what he wants them to do with no technology. People that he just met that he hasn't even really built a relationship with or has really had a conversation with. He takes them high. He takes them low. These dudes on the stage, these guys are like four of them. They're like brain research scientists, PhDs, and they're all like, you know, and Bobby just like shows them what's up. And I show that video when I speak and I kind of ad lib that just to remind educators to Really try to engage your students as much as you can. Give them a problem to solve. Put them in charge of the learning. You know, there's a saying that has been said for a long time. Don't be the sage on the stage. Be the guide on the side. Because when you can guide your, your students, when you can guide your community, they're really going to have that buy-in to do what they already know that they want to do. I think project-based learning, Terrell, is a really good place to start. You know, think about the hardest lesson that you have to teach and how can you make a project 
uh, project-based learn that with your students, I think it's a really, really important thing to think about. You know, I didn't love high school at all. I actually really disliked high school, but my favorite class was auto shop. I took auto shop two periods a year, all four years. And if I look back now, that's kind of project-based learning in 2022, where you spent time in a classroom, you learn from like a book or a manual, you learn from like some old school VHS videotapes. And then really quickly, the auto shop teacher had us go out into the shop and we were opening up hoods. We were taking tires off. We were jacking up cars. We were learning with our hands. And not everybody needs to learn that way, but a lot of kids do do learn and need to learn that way. And I'm one of them. And just because I didn't do well on a test, uh, like the SATs, I got the bare minimum to get into college. That doesn't mean that I'm, I can't be successful. I just learn differently than how maybe people were teaching or how we were assessing the learning of that teacher. So just to kind of cap it off, really think about engaging your kids. Don't do for kids what they can do for themselves. So as you're preparing lessons, as you're opening your classroom door every day or every period to, a, to your students, really think, can I be doing this or can they be doing this? And when, when it's they can be doing this, you know, give it to them as fast as you can. It's not going to always be smooth. It's going to be nervous sometimes. People listening, I know y'all are going to be nervous. Like I've never done this before. Am I losing control of my classroom? Yeah, you might be. But that's when that real learning happens and you really engage those kids. The, when you really engage the kids and you don't need to be the one up there entertaining because entertaining is not sustainable. Entertaining is running a six-minute mile. <laughs> and Terrell, I can run a six minute mile, but I can't run a six minute mile for 26.2 miles. Me I have to, I have to think about the longevity of a day, the longevity of a school year, because I want to cross that finish line of a marathon or a school year and feel like, man, I feel good. You know, I'm happy, I'm healthy. And I think that kind of encapsulates all of that in, in some way. Um, so really just think about engaging, engaging your students as much as you can. And you're not going to be able to do that for everything. Some lessons you're like, kids, I'm talking, you're listening 30 minutes. I got to, I got, I got to teach you this and then we're going to get into it. And that's cool. I'm not saying you should be one way or the other. Um, it just depends on what it is. And also just kind of, you know, finger the pulse of your students. If, if you feel like you're losing them, scrap what you're going to do, give them a problem to solve and then, uh, and then see what happens. Yeah. I guess, uh, I mean, like you literally answered the next question within that question. <laughs> so I like literally, I mean, you nailed it. Cause I was, I was wondering, I was like, what does it look like? You know, like student engagement and you kind of went through that. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I was going to ask you about like, what would the first steps be? And you kind of, you know, it kind of gave me that too. Um, I, I guess, you know, Adam, like you are wildly successful, whether it's as an educator, like you were on the who's who's, uh, who's who list, for the National Association of School Boards. Like, I mean, you've, you've done all of these different things. Like, if you were talking to a 20-year-old Adam Welcome, you know, 21-year-old Adam Welcome, what would you tell him that your keys to success have been, uh, like, over the years that led you to being who you are today? Yeah, stop talking and start doing. Most things never get done, Terrell, because they never get started, because people – 
people start a committee or they, you know, they get a, they get a big whiteboard or something in their office and they write all these ideas down and they, and they storyboard and it's too complicated. I'm a big fan of post-it notes. When I want to do something, maybe that's new or I want to change what I'm doing. I write it down on a post-it note. Uh, I write down kind of what I want to do. And then I write down the steps that I'm going to take to move towards that. Because like a big whiteboard or a big old piece of paper, it's too complicated. But a post-it note, man, it keeps it simple. And I always knew that I wanted to do stuff and to go somewhere, that hypothetical somewhere. And I just, I just talked out loud. I connected with people. I, I, uh, I just started doing things. I mean, dude, I'm 43. When I was 25, I sold my car and I was going to go a year without a car. I wanted to live a year without a car. And I started a blog called Cycling Teacher Guy. And I just blogged about life as a elementary school teacher, you know, trying to get groceries, trying to get to work, trying to date, you know, it's hard, right? Taking the bus. There was no Uber back then, dude, you know, and I just started writing. I just started writing like literally on the daily about like, oh man, I got, I got wet on the way to work today. It was raining or this or that, or I dropped my groceries and just different things. And that is really, honestly, if I look back, that was the impetus to starting to blog as a educator and then podcasting and then started speaking for free. I just would get any chance I got. I would like go and talk at a conference or talk to principals or superintendents for free. Um, and then when it came time, when, 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 uh, when Todd Nestloni and I started Kids Deserve It, it was like, if I look back, I'm like, that is why I was doing all of those things. I didn't know that was going to be the fruition of all those things, but I just did things. And I just tell people, think where you would be right now today if you had started the thing that you're thinking about a year ago. Just think about where you would be in 365 days. And most people just don't get started because they're nervous. They think they, they think they're too young or too old or too this or too that, or I don't know. And I just tell you, like, just start. And if you haven't started yet, the second best time is to start right now. Start right now. If you want to start a podcast or a blog or whatever it is, give yourself a deadline. I'm starting right now. And my first thing is going to be out tomorrow. And the first time you do something, it's probably going to suck. And that's okay because the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth time, you get a little bit better every time that you go because you improve it. You go, you start thinking about it more. When you, when, when I put my first podcast out or my first blog post ever, I had no idea. I just wrote it and I hit publish. And then all I could think about was my next blog post or my next podcast, or my first keynote, all I could think about was my second keynote. And when you do that, when you're thinking about it all the time, you're analyzing and you're making it better. And you're like, oh, if I did this, I could get more of a reaction. Or why did I do this or that? So the point is just start doing the thing. Just start doing the thing. Don't wake up someday and it's too late. Because it's just too late and you haven't started doing the thing that you want to do. The time is right now to start the thing. Just get started. Yeah, that's so true. That's literally how my show started. I walked down to the basement one day. I was tired of talking about it. It's like, you know what? Dang it. I'm going to do it. 
And if it's bad, it's just going to be bad, but I'm going to be better on the next one. And uh, literally, man, we're almost at the one year mark since that happened, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, I don't know. But uh, Adam, man, I know that you're incredibly busy. Could you tell everyone where they can follow you? Like, where can they find out more about you? And I, I really, I'm so thankful of you for this time. Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, I'm Mr. Adam Welcome on all social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. MrAdamWelcome.com is my website. I have all my blogs, my podcasts. If you're looking for a speaker to do professional development, I've done over, over 300 keynotes all across the country, 42 states, I think. I got I to gotta check. Uh, yeah, I'm, I've written four books, Kids Deserve It, Empower Our Girls, uh, Run Like a Pirate, and my newest book that came out a couple of years ago is Teachers Deserve It. They are on Amazon, as you can imagine, and actually quite a few, if not all, Barnes & Noble, uh, like brick-and-mortar stores around the country actually stock. Kids Deserve It in stock, which is pretty cool. You can actually get a copy in person. And uh, if you'd rather listen to the words than read them, Kids Deserve It is actually um, an audiobook on Audible. You can uh, you can listen. Todd and I recorded it ourselves, so our voices are are on there. Um, yeah, that's pretty much uh, pretty much where you can find more about me. All right. So thank you, Adam, so much for your time. I truly appreciate you. I appreciate the work that you're, you're doing out there, like helping us to become more awesome because uh, our kids deserve it and they really need us right now. So I, I really appreciate you. And thank you so much for your time. Everybody out there watching, uh, share this video. I think people need to hear uh, what Adam's saying. I probably already heard you because I mean, like you're all <laughs> over the country, you, you know, you're a big timer, but um but yeah, just share the video. I mean, there's so much wisdom in this in this episode, you know, even just listening to how you just got started and everything like this. So make sure you share this. Hit the like button so that uh, it can spread around more. And thanks so much, everyone. I'll see you all next time.